Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Human nature and the nature of politics never changes. You know, as Madison says, party influence is going to influence our government at all stages, no matter what happens. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Samuel Lair discussing the partisan politics that shaped the first Congress. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Samuel Lair, and he'll be discussing the unique political circumstances surrounding the First Continental Congress, particularly when applied to electing members to the House of Representatives. Samuel is a new contributor to the Journal of the American Revolution, and he has provided us with a wonderful article detailing a number of different states and their unique approaches uh, to choosing members to serve in the House of Representatives. One of the strengths of the article is that it kind of shows the process a bit. Uh, It shows that political disagreements are nothing new and that there are many different ways to reach an amicable solution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Samuel Lair. Samuel Lair, thank you for joining us. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your background. So right now I'm a PhD student at Hillsdale College. Um, Prior to that, I received my bachelor's degree from the University of Nevada, Reno, studying political science and a minor in philosophy. Um, Afterwards, I dabbled around in some, you know, grassroots organization working for campaigns. Um, I did a little Schwartz stint for a non-partisan think tank in Nevada. Um, Now, like I said, I'm at Hillsdale College getting my PhD. Uh, I have kind of multivariate interests so far. Um, The program's structured around a study of the modern American regime, um, as well as the grand tradition of political philosophy and the founding. Um, Gearing up, though, you know, preparing for my dissertation, um, I'm thinking on focusing on the founding, particularly the statesmanship and political thought of James Monroe. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, first, uh, a good grade, <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness, um, I, I did some work for my graduate research assistantship um, looking at Michigan this past or a couple election cycles ago, adopted a new form of establishing their system of apportionment. Um, they transferred the power from the legislature to an independent redistricting committee. And so I've been interested in this question of, how did the founders and how did the original Congress and Constitutional Convention view the system of apportionment and view election laws and this whole process? You know, because it's something every 10 years you hear about and you definitely hear about, oh, gerrymandering, gerrymandering this, you know. Um, So I wanted to go back and I wanted to really look at, okay, how did the founders actually see this? But then more importantly, how did it actually come out in practice? Because as we all know, you know, theory and practice don't always look the exact same. Um, so now I also previously, I I've been writing this paper on, um, article the first, 
which is the only amendment of the original 12 that the first federal Congress proposed to look at, um, you know, it, it was about the enumeration of the House of Representatives about the size. So this general question of how the House of Representatives is supposed to look has been something I've been kicking around in my head for quite a while. Talk about the framers' vagueness on the matter of House elections. So the, consequ- the Constitution, like you said, is pretty vague on how members of the House are supposed to be elected. Uh, the only real guidance is provided in Article War or Article 1, Section 4, which gives a general pronouncement of the powers of state legislatures to determine the times, places, and manner of holding congressional elections. But then the authority of Congress to any time, by law, make or alter such regulations. And ironically, even though there's this small, pretty straightforward dic- dictation, it, even to this, to this day, you know, courts and people argue about this. Most recently, the Supreme Court has a- agreed to hear a case in North Carolina about the independent state legislative theory, which says that, which is pretty much setting out how much authority the state legislature has in determining this question of how to elect House members. Um, but you know, if you go into this constitutional convention and the debate, it's pretty clear that from the get-go, you know, coming from the Article of Confederation, being a social compact framework to say that there's always going to be a role for the state legislatures to have some sort of say on how their members were going to represent their people. After all, they're representing the people of those states. However, especially Madison, as you'll see also in the Federalist Papers, and Rufus King is another figure, were very concerned about the effectiveness of the national government and protecting themselves from state legislatures, which might want to, you know, gum up the gears of the government. So Rufus King, for example, talks about how it would be ideal to have, you know, set districts in place. Um, But, you know, if you did that, some people might leave, some people might join, you know, so the district you do now might not be at the same size 10, 20 years from now. So you should give the power of state legislatures to then expand or change their districts in any way they see fit. Meanwhile, Madison, you know, he talks about how all the particulars are going to be decided by the state, you know, whether they vote by ballot or viva voce, which is by voice, um, whether they should assemble at this place or that place, meaning whether they should assemble at county centers, or a single city, or whether they should just have, you know, promulgated voting districts and voting booths everywhere, um, and all other litanies of questions, that would depend on the legislature. But ultimately, he saw it as important because of this, that party influence could come in at any time and make it so a law that might, is supposed to be to help the union receive its, you know, refined and enlarged interest of all the views that are particular, you know, the federal government should be able to step in at any time and say, no, that law doesn't really work for us. You know, we, we need to be able to make sure that we elect people and elect people in a manner that is efficient so that way the national government and Congress can still meet and perform its business. Um, why it's vague, you know, that, that's it's a hard question to answer. Um, like, like I said, you know, part of this was by design coming from the social compact theory that obviously the state legislatures are going to have to have a say within that theory. But at the same time, you know, by the time they got to this question, they're already kind of exhausted. 
you know, the Connecticut compromise, the three-fifths compromise, you know, those two things, you know, establishing the two houses of government and then deciding who, well, you know, the, the contentious issue on the three-fifths compromise, that took a lot of the political capital away from these, away from some of these other minor issues. And the Constitutional Convention, I think the, the framers that were there, realized that they couldn't have these long, dragged-out fights over every single minor issue. You know, so the way it's structured that we see now in the Constitution kind of has the best of both worlds. It, you know, yes, the state legislatures are going to kind of do what they want to want. The kids will play, but the adults can still step in at any time and rectify something if it, if it goes bad. You know, and, and, and to that last point, you kind of see this within, I mentioned previously, Article the First, um, and the size of the House, which is what that dealt with. You know, James Wilson in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention notes that the size of the House was something, a, a subject of embarrassment. And the convention to frame the article felt the embarrassment, he says. And, you know, even the last, up to the last day, the very last motion, fun fact, also the only thing that George Washington, as the presiding chair of the convention, spoke in favor for was to deal with the size of the House, you know. So they just didn't have the capacity to really set out in strict detail every single one of these minor issues, such as how a House member is supposed to be elected. Who were the prominent voices on this matter and what were their arguments? So as with most of these issues, the, the two people you want to go to, are, I think, are Hamilton, Madison, John Jay and the Federalist, you know, because they really set the tone um, with really putting forward the pro-constitutional argument as to why the system of government that we have today and why the proposed constitution at that time is structured in the way it is. So. For example, the power of Congress to intercede and decide, you know, veto essentially a state's way of defining or electing representatives. Hamilton notes in Federal Federalist 59 um, is derived from the simple, the simple principle that every government ought to contain in itself the means of its own preservation, is what he says. Um, and that goes back to what I said before: is that you you don't you want to you know give the state legislature some room to play, but at the same time. If they decide that they don't want to play anymore, you want an adult to step into the room and be like, no, you still have to participate in this game. Um, you know, otherwise, it wasn't completely sure, you know, at that time how these districts or whether any districts are going to exist. But Madison makes it pretty clear that or he implies at least that there's going to be single member districts um, in Federal 10, for example. He argues that the purpose of representation is to, in the extended sphere, which is essentially our system of federalism, how we know it, um, is that the representative's purpose is to refine and enlarge the public views. Um, in Federal 54, meanwhile, he notes that the representatives must have an immediate dependence on intimate sympathy with the people in order to do that. And in responding to in another federal paper, responding to the charge that the House number, of the, the size of the House is too small, to possess a due knowledge of the interests of the constituents. He argues that to divide the largest state to 10 or 12 districts, implying single member districts, uh, it'll be found that no peculiar interest in either, which not be in the general knowledge of the representative of the district. Um, so Madison suggested that, and, and in fact, you know, although he implies that single member districts within the Federalist Papers, you know, elsewhere um, in, a, in, a, in a letter following Pennsylvania's um, election laws it kind of implies that actually it's a good thing that they did set these things out in strict guidelines. You know, he says, you know, let the Pennsylvania do what it's going to do and Virginia's going to do what it's going to do. And then afterwards, you know, through some experience, 
we can kind of figure out the best mode of election, which is our, which our country did. That's why we do the single member district model for the past, you know, how many years. Talk about Pennsylvania state election laws. Yeah, so Pennsylvania is an interesting one. They're the first ones as well. Um, but it's, in my opinion, one of the clearest examples of how partisan influence kind of played into these first federal election laws. Uh, so the Harrisburg Convention was a convention of anti-federalists that were coming to, you know, they wanted to modify the Constitution or create something that wasn't so centrally focused. Um, recognizing that the Federalist majority in the state legislature at the time wanted to rush through an elections bill. Uh, Thomas Fitzsimmons, a state-level Federalist who I believe ended up serving in Congress, noted the urgency of this sentiment um, in a letter in which he stated, a good mode might now, I believe, be obtained, which in another assembly would not be practical, meaning that if we wait till after the election, you know, we might not have the majority to determine how our you know, elected officials going to be selected. So to this point, uh, the federal legislature chose to elect its members of Congress through a general ticket, um, meaning so there's a different ways you can understand that the way they did it is that they had all the people, all the voters, that is, submit a written ballot with eight names on it, with eight individuals, obviously. And then whatever those eight received the most votes received the appointment to the first federal Congress. Um, another interesting point is that the Pennsylvania Federalists also engaged in one of the earliest forms of party organization. Um, so they reconvened a second time in a little miniature party convention, if you set, if you will, um, to nominate a slate of congressional candidates and as well as presidential electors. And which is essentially, if you, if you view it, it could be viewed as the first party ticket in United States history. Um, and for those who might say, oh, well, that just happened. That doesn't prove that it's partisan influence and, you know, motivated that at all. Some letters after the fact from Benjamin Rush in particular kind of show that, you know, this is clearly for partisan advantage. Um, Benjamin Rush, for example, writes that obliging the whole state to vote in one ticket, it is expected the Federalists will prevail by a majority of two to one in the choice of representatives. Echoing that sentiment, uh, another Federalist, Thomas Hartley, noted that taking all the pain that the anti-federalists were taking all the pains in their power to obtain a majority in the federal legislature and thus they required equal exertions on the federal side to prevent the government from what he says being embarrassed and the wheels prevented from moving and this is actually how madison and washington and other pro-constitution federalists viewed the issue as an urgent issue uh, madison in 1788 after virginia ratified the constitution noted that he thinks it was the anti-federalist plan to gain a majority in Congress to affect suicide on their own authority, meaning that they were going to take the amendment, push, and fundamentally alter the Constitution via the amendment process. And agreeing with this assessment, Washington urged all advocates of the Constitution to combine their exertions for collecting the wisdom and virtue of the continent to one center to stop the anarchy and division that he expected to be happen if the Constitution has ratified wasn't protected, you know? So really, in a lot of ways, the, the Pennsylvania Federalists and creating this biased political system were trying to save the Constitution and going off of the cues of other major national figures such as Madison and Washington. How was Maryland different? Yeah, so Maryland's fun. I, that's, I, Pennsylvania is one of the most clearest examples of partisan influence. Maryland's the most fun example of that um, because of a few writings that uh, happened before and after. Um, for example, 
a Maryland Federalist writer is talking about how single member districts create essentially demagogues. He writes uh, that a single member district or representative will create or it will create candidates who will not be too proud to court what are generally called the poor folks. Shake them by the hand, ask for them for their vote and interest. When an opportunity serves, treat them to a can of grog and wash drinking it, join heartily and abusing what are called the great people. You know, so this kind of goes to show, you know, the kind of tit for tat in politics that exists now. You know, you, you hear the you hear now people attack Democrats like, oh, you know, you're Jacobins or something, right? And this shows the same thing is going on at this time. You know, the Federalists were talking about, well, if we have single member districts, if we in other words, we create institutions that allow the anti Federalist level playing field at this time, you know, you're gonna have demagogues. You're gonna have the bad parts of democracy that we're trying to cure through ratifying the Constitution. Um, and, and to this point, this is a sentiment that bled into the Maryland legislature as well. Um, they adopted a single member district model, but also with a weird general ticket hybrid twist. So the Maryland law established that a state would be divided into six districts, you know, telling the interference like, here, here's your six districts, your single member districts with residency requirements. So that way the person running had to be living there. But the twist, which is very hilarious, in my opinion, is that they allowed every single voter in the state to cast a ballot in each of the districts. You know, so if you're in Baltimore, you could still cast, you'd still cast not just the vote for your own representative, but for every other representative in the state. Um, in effect, turning it into a statewide contest um, that allowed the Federalists to both as well, like Pennsylvania, draft and disseminate a unified party ticket and essentially sweep the congressional districts. Um, and, and I think a very hilarious parallel to the 2016 election, this anti-Federalist writer wrote in response to the laws, um, talking about how the whole of the election in Maryland was decided by three counties, Frederick, Cecil, and Washington. Um, and then also, you know, delved into this like math where he's like, it's impossible that 1,161 out of 1,200 eligible voters, you know, which is a 97% turnout roughly, uh, could possibly have all voted without the instances of fraud. And concluding on looking at, you know, this law, he, he, he urged all his fellow citizens, he's like, can any honest, virtuous citizen, not a slave to party, maintain that the act regulating the late election is constitutional, just or wise? You know, so it, it, it's a funny little tidbit that shows that, you know, as far, as much as things change, the, the little arguments in politics never change at all. How was the New York system disputed? Yeah, so New York, you know, New York's a very interesting case as well, because being the center of the ratification debates, both within the convention and both via print, you had this very robust argument, again, both in the legislature and in print about what the Constitution actually stipulated and what it actually provided to. Uh, Federalists, for example, I don't know if this is a very honest argument, but it's one that they gave, um, is that they said that the Constitution, you know, guarantees one vote per representative, you know, meaning essentially what Maryland did is that it guarantees you not only if your state has six representatives, you're guaranteed by the Constitution six votes for representatives. Federal, Anti-Federalists, meanwhile, you know, continuing on their general trend that you saw in the other states, they wanted the single member districts because as a minority party, 
the single member districts, while they couldn't take the whole cake, they'd give them the slices of their pie that they feel like they deserved. Um, you know, and you saw this within, you know, Federalist Henry Brockhurst, for example, gave that argument that I just mentioned. Uh, anti federalist John Lansing responded in that, you know, the Constitution had not intended, uh, or if the Constitution had intended to not provide single member districts, it would have, you know, specifically stated that there wouldn't be. Um, so at the end of the day, though, uh, poor heads had to prevail. And the, the, the key thing that decided the question in New York was the fact that there was a split house. So you had Federalists controlling one house, anti-Federalists controlling the other house. And to this point, they had to adopt something that conciliated both of them. Um, and to that point, they created the single member district model because otherwise, you know, not everyone would have agreed to it. And so the U.S. had to just kind of take their wins where they could and lick their wounds where they couldn't. And the biggest issue, though, uh, that ended up coming out in New York is about residency requirements. You know, did, did the person who ran in a single member district have to be a resident of that district? Ultimately, the anti-federalists won that debate and said, yes, you do, which is, in my opinion, probably a good idea for representative democracy, that the person representing you be from the community in which you're representing. Um, and so, yeah, it, you know, although on its face, you'll look at it and see, and also the election results and go, oh, well, New York passed the single member district model, which is kind of what we have, which looks like what we have today. And, you know, the Federalists won a majority, but the anti-Federalists got theirs. You know, so partisan influence actually didn't play, to play at all here. But actually, it really did, because the fact that you had this divisive partisan infighting in the state that created this compromise. What can we generally say about these original election laws? So, you know, going back to the idea of the Federalist, you know, there's this pure theory, pure constitutional theory that people of my ilk, especially love to go back and look at, you know, you read the Federalists or you read, you know, a private letter from Thomas Jefferson or something. And you go, you know, this is how the constitution is supposed to work, you know, but that's not always the case. You know, it, when you get actual politics involved, you know, things get changed up and, you know, it, especially in a time where you're supposed to be above party, you know, the, the first party system, you know, according to scholarly consensus hasn't even come about yet. Uh, nevertheless, you know, you're seeing that even in the first federal election with the constitution just ratified with the people who just ratified it, making the arguments in the state legislature that the so-called pure theory of the constitution for one, wasn't even really settled as shown in the debates in New York, but also on top of that also didn't seem to matter that much in the long scheme of things. You know, people were mostly concerned about the immediate partisan influences. And now the, they both, these interests were, High pollutant in the sense that the Federalists were trying to protect the Constitution, you know, because they wanted a stronger union. And the anti-Federalists saw the Constitution as a centralizing force that could, you know, take away people's liberties, you know. So, but if you wipe away, you know, these kind of higher concerns, you see that really uh, party spirit, as Madison likes to call it, you know, has been influencing the democratic mechanisms of our country since literally the first federal Congress. You know, we talk about gerrymandering today um and that term didn't come out until you know later in the 1790s but the first instance of gerrymandering already happened you know in the very first election cycle you know so it's uh i think it's an interesting story at the end of the day you know and, and it reveals a lot about just the nature of democratic politics in general 
How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? So, mostly, well, I think in multiple ways. So, first is what I kind of just already touched on, is that human nature and the nature of politics never changes. You know, as Madison says, party influence is going to influence our government at all stages, no matter what happens. You know, so when you're looking at our modern politics, you can take on these lessons, you can take on these disputes, and you can go back and you can look at the debates that, you know, went through ratification and went through the Constitution Convention and the debates of the first Congress and see similar trends, you know, and that, that should make you feel good about how about, about your our democracy, you know. A, a lot of the times people like to talk about, you know, this is unprecedented times. This is an unprecedented crisis of democracy. But it's really not. We, we've gone through these things over and over again. And so when looking at back at the founding era, you can have some, some conciliation to know that these people are really dealing with the same issues that we're dealing with now. And they have ideas about them that I think are useful, you know, for not only their own time, but also for our time. Um, and then the second point, you know, going on top of this also is that I think people generally like to view the founding or the revolution as, oh, either the revolution and then the constant convention and then it's kind of over, right? But that's not really the case. Even after ratification, um, the process of founding wasn't over. You know, yes, the Constitution was ratified, but then you had this very, very fierce debate about amendments and the political jockeying that had to happen, you know, through these first federal election laws that determined the, you know, composition of the first federal Congress, determined what those amendments would look like. You know, so although we like to say, oh, ratification, you know, that was the necessary three, four states, we did it, we won. Well, history shows that that actually wasn't the case. There's a lot of ground that still had needed to be won. Um, and also, I think another interesting point is that this kind of shows that the reading of the Constitution isn't always black and white. You know, we have single member district models now. The pure constitutional theory, as you could say, in the Federalist Papers shows that we need to have single member district models. Um, but as the debate, especially in New York, show, is there's some room for interpretation within the Constitution. And if we, as Madison says, you know, sometimes practice and just seeing how things play out in reality should inform the institutional mechanisms that we should desire. You know, so in this day and age, you know, although we've been doing single member district models for however many years, you know, we should take that to heart that, you know, these are not these were not settled issues then. We should not they should not be seen as settled issues now. If there's a better way for improving the representative nature of our democracy, if there's a better way to improve the protection of the rights and liberties of the people. We should try to embrace that. And I think truly, you know, by doing these deep dives into not only the political theory, but also the political practice of our founding fathers can really give us the real lessons that will inform our contemporary politics. Samuel Lair, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. 